Welcome to the latest edition of the Mind Gut Conversation podcast, a place to learn about breakthroughs in the science and practice of health, mind-body interactions, the microbiome, food, and the environment. Today, I have the great pleasure to talk to Dr. Uma Naidu, author of the book, This is Your Brain on Food. Dr. Naidu is a board-certified psychiatrist, professional chef, and nutrition specialist who holds several positions. She's currently the Director of Nutritional and Metabolic Psychiatry at the Massachusetts General Hospital, where she consults on nutritional interventions for the psychiatrically and medically ill. She's also Director of Nutritional Psychiatry at the Massachusetts General Hospital Academy and in private practice. In addition, she teaches at the Cambridge School of Culinary Arts. She blogs for Harvard Health and Psychology Today and has just completed a unique video cooking series for the Massachusetts General Hospital Academy, which teaches nutritional psychiatry using culinary techniques in the kitchen. Finally, she has appeared as a mental health and nutrition expert on multiple podcasts and has been featured in the press. Yeah, so welcome to the show, Dr. Naidu. I may call you Uma. Please do. Thank you. It's it's a real pleasure talking to you today about a topic that I, I guess both of us are interested in and have have written about. So it's it's really nice to exchange our our views and opinions on on this important topic of nutritional psychiatry. You're uniquely qualified as a nutritional psychiatrist because you sort of have this triple threat being a a board-certified psychiatrist, um, a nutrition specialist, and trained chef. And I would add a fourth to it. You have um, a family tradition of, um, you know, being uh, exposed to to healthy cooking and uh, cuisine. So it really yeah. makes you a, a uniquely qualified individual. And I should also start out with, you know, the, the book that... Um, that we'll be talking about. This is really, um, I, I would highly recommend this as reading material for anybody who's interested in how much what we eat actually influences how our brain functions on a, on a daily basis. So let me start out with something personal. How, how did you end up with this unique trajectory? It, it really does go back to those uh, healthy eating days in my family without realizing it. I grew up around my grandmother to whom my book was dedicated. Uh, my mom was in medical school during the day and I would watch her prepare meals from scratch, pick vegetables from the garden, have a sense of community. We'd eat lunch together. My grandparents would entertain me and teach me yoga and meditation so they would keep me busy. So it sort of came into mental health training with this background that was very integrated and holistic. I didn't realize those were the words at the time, but I kept asking why we were not speaking to our patients about more things, not just pulling out a prescription pad, but asking about what they were eating, were they exercising, um, not just a social history, but much more than that. And I you know, pursued things that I really enjoyed doing and early on realized there was a gap in our education because we just simply don't know enough about nutrition. 
but the culinary school part was really uh, my fondness uh, for Julia Child, whom I used to watch when I was studying, um, you know, uh, not being able to afford cable television, I'd watch her on public television in Boston. She was great, not only a great chef, she was very entertaining, and it gave me confidence as a young cook. And when I realized that she did this much later in her life as a second career, I thought, why not me? But, you know, the fact that it became so integrated in my career, um, in many ways, hindsight is twenty twenty, and putting it together was the blueprint of the work that I do today. Um, you mentioned a couple of times um, the sort of lifestyle that you grew up in, you know, um, um, eating meals in, in the family and community and um, which are obviously very important factors, you know, that um, so in science, we call them confounding factors, you know, which is kind of, uh, but we find the same thing with the Mediterranean cuisine. If you ever, you know, go to any of the Mediterranean countries and, and, yes. and, and enjoy a meal and, and watch people, how they eat and meet friends. And um, so dramatically different from, you know, the way we do this here in the, in the US. I mean, here, the, the social contact or birthday parties where you generally eat the unhealthy, the unhealthiest food. Um, but it's, it's not, uh, you know, it's not an integral part of the, the way um, humans interact with, with, with their meals. How, how much do you think that, uh, you know, I would say non-food non or non-biological non component plays in, 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 in the health benefit of uh, nutrition, yeah. of, of, of diet? I think it's actually much bigger than we think. Initially, one would think, well, it's just, um, you know, maybe you don't have family, maybe you don't have friends that you can share meal with. But one of the things that COVID taught us was how isolation and quarantine was so much more difficult for some people than others. Um, and, and a study that looked at um, the brains of individuals who did not have COVID um, but developed neuroinflammation anyway, I think was a real telltale sign that that sense of isolation and stress that was going on. So it wasn't just one factor, many. But these were individuals who did not even get the COVID infection. I think to me that spoke to the fact that, that even a sense of community and, and, and eating together, even if it is on Zoom with someone, say you live alone, or um, having a pet or having um, having family that you can visit as restrictions are lifted becomes important to just our mental well-being. Um, also mindful eating, you know, as a resident, as a psychiatric resident, I was a horrible eater. I was always eating on the run, eating too late, eating in the middle of the night. Um, and, you know, it, and when I think back to those days, despite what I knew, uh, circumstances were sort of surrounding me in a way that I wasn't able to control that. And I think it, it starts with, you know, being mindful, being planned, um, prepping your meals, carrying a lunch, um, you know, enjoying preparing meals together with friends, family, whoever it is. I think that that brings a very important factor to how we enjoy our food. We also eat too fast. I mean, I find I've, I have to remind myself um, and that's been shown um, to, you know, impact digestion. We know that much. But I think that all of those factors often get overlooked. 
you know, when we think about just the, the medical facts only. Yeah, um, you know, I've, I've sort of um, looked into this, into the literature and sort of gone back and forth myself. I mean, how much are these relative components contributing to the, so right now we're in this, you know, almost like enthusiastic embracement by the lay public yeah. really of this nutritional psychiatry concept, less so by the psychiatry uh, specialty <clears throat> and, e and even yeah. less so by, you know, my specialty, uh, gastroenterology. Um, and I've, I've, I've struggled with this, you know, there's, there's the social component, there's the psychological, there's the expectation, um, there's the memories of food that we have often associated with positive memories in childhood. So when you eat something, it brings back that. Um, and how much is actually related to the actual component of food, which is so complex, you know, what we know now, there's thousands of polyphenols, there's hundreds of different fiber molecules, each of them require different kind of, you know, microbes to break them down. So what, what are the relative roles of this? This is something, quite honestly, I've not found the final answer to yet. And, uh, I, and, I, and, and I think that's a, not only a great question, I think it speaks to the fact that this is a really nascent field. And you're absolutely right, it is not fully embraced by just mental health professionals. I think a lot of younger professionals are very interested in more lifestyle factors because they are seeing how speaking about exercise or mindfulness or um, forest bathing or hydration with their patients makes a difference. But when we look at the actual food, my position on it is we don't know everything. It's not a prescription for your mental well-being, but it is something that can work to support forms of therapy, which I feel are very important. Um, and certain medications, uh, which I feel have saved the lives of many of my patients. So it should work collaboratively with everything else, but it's a factor that's been ignored. Yet psychiatrists and other physicians uh, who prescribe medications, psychotropics, are constantly trying to catch the side effects, like the weight gain, like the sexual dysfunction, instead of almost thinking about it a little bit in reverse. Like, can we, is, is the individual as they start medication, can they also be engaging in lifestyle factors? And to your point, Dr. Mayuno, the, the, it's true that every food can be broken down into so many nutrients, and then which microbe does it interact with? I, I think that as we, more research emerges, we'll know more, but what I've discovered is by putting someone on a sort of a nutritional psychiatry plan of more health, healthy nutrients than not, um, you know, we know there's a good amount of evidence for things like omega-3 fatty acids and depression and anxiety and even cognition. Um, doesn't make it a prescription, but I've noticed these changes clinically and improvement um, in, in how they're doing. So I feel like those things um, are what led to, you know, the, the, the vignettes that I could share in my book about what different individuals did. And I think also that where we're eating and eating several meals a day, why not do it in a way that could improve our mental well-being and see how we feel? Uh, because the, 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 the upside of it is people often lose weight. People often feel that. People may have a, a, have a um, different need for the amount of insulin they're taking. You know, just, it depends, of course, on the individual case. But I've had, I've had unusual uh, 
uh, things like that happen as I'm working with someone, so. Um, yeah, <clears throat> I mean, the one thing that, you know, we, we're obviously missing in, in this field is, there's lots of evidence now from often really well-designed, many of these studies come out of Harvard Public Health School, these uh, big epidemiological studies that show these associations between in large populations, 20,000 uh, Harvard nurses study, 20,000, mm -hmm. 30,000 people. And we have the same studies, uh, you know, evaluating the Mediterranean diet and, <clears throat> and what these studies show clearly an association between a, a healthy diet, let's say the Mediterranean diet and better mental health, better physical health. Um, what we don't have, or very sm only in small amounts, are these mechanistic causative studies, like you know, interventions done at the same rigor as okay. a randomized controlled trial for a medication. And right. most authors, you know, mention that and acknowledge that limitation. Okay. And, and there's a big demand and push by the NIH. You know, we need intervention studies that look at the causality. Yeah, Does yeah. it actually make a difference if you if you're on a certain diet, or is that not just associated that if you are on this diet, you also have other um, healthier lifestyles that you pursue you that know, you that, that you are pursuing? You know, one of the things that I struggle with so much is that nutritional science changes all the time, but at the same time, there's no real impetus for there to be a huge amount of funding for nutritional science studies. And they are not nearly robustly funded as the big pharma studies are. So, you know, when you when you think about different individuals who speak to this point, uh, you know, there are even uh, there are even conversations about how um, blood pressure parameters will be influenced by pharmaceutical companies so that they can push a certain sale of a certain medication. So I think that you know i prescribe medications and like i've said it they can be life-saving for certain individuals i think that there isn't the the great robust um push to do these nutrition studies there might be the interest from many of us but but it, it, these are not easily funded so i agree with your point and i feel that uh that is why i i know that this is newer science but also i'm hoping that some of the research that will be ongoing like your work and others um, and some of what we're doing, you know, around the microbiome and around what we can learn about manipulation in a positive way of those gut microbes, what that will do for mental health. I'm really excited about, you know, what what could be done with psychobiotics, for example. And I feel like that could truly be uh, a positive change for mental health. But we're still early. Yeah, so, yeah, I'm faced with that myself, you know, that, like, probiotics or psychobiotics um, that are, you know, have demonstrated positive effects, beneficial effects on, on, on mental health. So the companies that have probiotics, success, that sell probiotics successfully, mm -hmm. they generally don't have an interest to launch a huge, um, you know, well-controlled, uh, randomized controlled study, because there's always the risk that it would not show the significant difference. Uh, and I've seen it several times now. I was invited to uh, advisory boards on planned big studies, international studies on probiotics. Yeah. And then they were canceled in the last minute. It was, it was, it was so there was never a reason given. But Interesting. 
it, I think the most likely reason is that these companies, their boards, their business people did not want to take that that risk as long as their product sells well. And so this is a big is a big dilemma. I mean, you know, it's the same with all the with all the supplements. You know that. Right. And, and, you know, the, the supplement industry is a billion dollar industry and it's not, as you well know, not regulated by the FDA and, and people who, uh, you know, some of my patients do take pro probiotics and I think that there's a, there, there is a role for them, but much of the time we can get a lot of good benefits from food. And often when someone's spending a lot of money on a probiotic, they don't realize they need to continue taking it for those positive effects to continue. They might take it and they might find it too expensive or might find that they forget and they stop taking it. And any benefits that have that have evolved and changed in the microbiome just go back to wherever it was. So um, there are lots of sort of, uh, uh, you know, people don't fully understand what they're getting into when they might purchase a probiotic or think about it. Um, you know, I, I will say, Dr. Mayer, that, you know, over the time that I've, I've worked in this field, I used to be more of a purist and, and thinking that, you know, we should get everything from food, but I've also realized our diets are not perfect. You know, we're facing environmental stresses and, and pollution and genetic factors and psych it's like so many things. So we, we don't, we, we try to eat healthy, we try to eat, make healthy choices, but we may not eat a perfect diet. So um, there is a place for, supp for supplements. I just don't feel you can out supplement a bad diet. So you can't be eating, you know, uh, Cheetos and, uh, uh, and, you know, ice cream and then take a supplement and, and make it all better. I think that's sometimes the, the other mistake that, that, that people make. Yeah, I, I think you make a very good point here. Because uh, so my feeling is, and I've, I, I think I've written this somewhere, that if you stay on your standard American diet and then take supplements and probiotics, um, they're not more than a placebo, you know, an, 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 an expensive placebo. If you are on a healthy diet, then there's a couple of possibilities. I mean, one is if your diet is so healthy that supplements are not necessary and, uh, you know, they will not show. And this has been shown for, for flavanols, for example, in a recent big study that people had a high baseline intake of flavanol containing foods, they, mm. they didn't get an additional benefit um, in their mm. cognitive function from adding a supplement or a flavanol. Mm. So, um, but I, I do agree with you. I mean, there's, and I, I used to be more of a purist to so fully uh, support natural diet uh, related mm. in, um, interventions. But first of all, there's many people that don't have access to these uh, to these diets. They they don't like you know you live on the east side, we live on the west side. These coastal communities have access to things that a lot of people in the south or in the central part of the country may not they have. Don't. And in that case, you know, supplements are definitely um, there's definitely a, a place for that and probably an important one. Uh, <clears throat> But if you had the choice, so if, if you have a patient who comes to you and you feel, you know, this patient would benefit from a higher omega-3 intake, higher polyphenol intake, what's your first reaction? I mean, do you go to the diet recommendation or do you say there's also supplements that you could take? You know, the, the usual, I, I'm generally a food first 
person because also the way that my clinic is set up, it's it's more like a, a, a tertiary care center. So the, the individuals being referred to me really are coming for that nutritional psychiatry work. And very often they are individuals who've either tried healthy diets or they've tried supplements, but they're suffering in some way with symptoms and they've really not found a lot of um, help. And we know that from we know that research shows in mental health that about 50% of individuals who take a medication actually um, may improve and about 25% of them continue to have symptoms. So, you know, it's a, it's a, um, it's surprising that, you know, we continue to prescribe medications outside of other interventions alongside them. Um, so knowing that, you know, I think, um, it just it, it it becomes important for us to offer people more more options, um, and you know that just I think that just is 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 the way that we should be doing it. So I might talk about you know the types of seafood they could get those omega three for three, um, uh, and then you know if they're plant based, we know that the short chain omega threes the ALA are not as well converted. Um, from you know hemp seeds or flax seeds and that type of thing. So we we you know a, a, a supplement in that case, if someone is plant based, may be important. They they should still eat for the fiber benefits and other benefits. They should still be eating all those seeds that are rich in the short chain omega threes. But they should probably consider a supplement as well if we're targeting depression and anxiety, for example. Um, so yes, I'm a food first person, and uh, if the individual is already taking a supplement, I don't. If it, if they've had no side effects from it, they can continue doing that. But we can also implement things in the diet as well. Um, do you? I mean, there's a lot of talk about <clears throat> personalized medicine, um, yeah. um, individualizing treatments, and uh, you know, there's more and more a, a push to identify. Uh, biomarkers that would identify subsets and biomarkers could be anything from microbiome based or metabolite based or um, other you know inflammatory markers based um, so the recommendations that you make in your various chapters for individual diseases so they're kind of disease specific but do you think also are they do you think this is personalized so it, one person benefits from you know, the, the, the high fiber diet or the high polyphenol right. diet more than another person. And yes. do you currently use any available tests or parameters to make that decision? So, you know, I use, I use the, in terms of symptom, symptom clusters, I use the mental health scales that we usually use for, for visits. Um, I don't know that they're entirely effective other than to give me a sense of whether on a scale, the person's depression, anxiety, for example, might be improving. Um, it from from being much more uh, of a generalized nutritional psychiatrist years ago when I started my clinic, I much more practice personalization with patients because I find that you know I had a mother and daughter. The daughter just visited with the mother in the visit, and they had an opposite reaction to a healthy food. Um, that I would have thought, well, they should both be eating it, but actually the daughter had a reaction to it. So, 
even though they're genetically, biologically related, they had a somewhat opposite response to the same healthy food. So I've learned through clinical experience and as research emerges that there are these nuances um, with individuals and we have to formulate that plan in a much more, um, much more personalized way. Another situation I would love, love to get your feedback on this too is individuals who have some type of gastrointestinal upset you know, they could have formal IBS, or they could just have struggled with, uh, with dysbiosis without knowing it for years and would come in. You can't just say, you know, eat lots of fiber. You know, if they have SIBO, you, you, you can't just say fruit and vegetables are important because they can't often initially tolerate those. So again, you, you know, if, if an individual comes in with those symptoms plus mental health symptoms, there have to be those nuances around the recommendations and therefore it becomes more personalized. But I would love to get your take on, on that as well. You know, with, with we, we know we recommend fiber so much because it's, it's such an important nutrient, yet there are people who cannot tolerate it initially. Yeah, so um, yeah, th th this, let me answer that first, and then there's another question related to this as well. I personally believe in this, you know, almost like human default diet. That I think there's okay. something, there's 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 clearly regional differences in the world depending on what climate you live in. What mm. you live at the equator, in the jungle, in the desert, in the uh, <clears throat> on the North Pole, um, and that's that has developed in evolution. That humans and the, the microbiome adapt to these environments to have optimal digestion. So clearly, with the big migrations that happen today, with you know both refugees but also voluntary migrations, a lot of these people come to a place like the United States or, or to Europe to a totally different environment. And so genetically and evolutionary, they may not be optimally ad adapted to this particular environment and may have side effects to some of the you know the, the dietary habits that that do well with us mm -hmm. <clears throat> in terms of but i still believe there's some for humans some default diet it's pretty general because um you know i i think the ability of humans to have survived and have thrived all over the world in different areas is that they're extremely adaptable <clears throat> mm. Um, and they can, you know, yeah, I mean, I would say there's, there's certain macronutrient requirements that are pretty universal, more or less universal. The micronutrient environments, uh, I, I think that's and the, you know, requirements for botanicals and uh, phytonutrients, I think may be more variable. To, depending on you know where you where you come from where genetic makeup where your microbial makeup is but i usually start with this default diet which is uh, you know a largely not exclusively a largely plant-based diet mm -hmm. um with the addition of um you know some some seafood and and, and some chicken as as animal protein sources mm -hmm. that's you know i've gotten a lot of criticisms and that from vegans and vegetarians who often religiously defend you know their, right. their complete avoidance of, 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 of animals Animal product. yeah uh, so and then since I see a lot of patients with these digestive disorders yeah 
I know there's about five items that, you know, people really, when they test it, may not tolerate. Uh, okay. Well, and I usually tell them to go through a trial period, starting with the, the complete, uh, you know, unrestricted diet. And then if they feel they get reproducible side effects to one or the other component, stop it for two weeks, monitor the mm -hmm. symptoms, reintroduce it for two weeks. If they really convince themselves that that is an item that they can't tolerate, um, mm. I usually tell them, reduce the amount, go, go to yeah. half of it. So this is, for example, something with dairy products. You know, a lot of people um, used to be able to, to drink large amounts of milk when they were children, but then right. they, they, you know, they only tolerate smaller amounts. Um, and then I end up with this personalized diet by trial and error. Mm. You know? And mm. I personally feel people feel empowered by this because it's their diet. Yeah. It's not something... Yeah some committee, some Rome committee recommends to them, you know, which is the best for them. And I, to me, that is very important, this empowerment that you are in charge, you're the expert and you're in charge of what you right. eat. And, and I, I completely agree with what you're saying, because that autonomy of having the power at the end of your own fork makes people feel that they're leaving the office, uh, even the virtual office with, you know, things that they can do. I think, you know, um, when I was, when I had to be in, in treatment, um, for chemotherapy, it really was a big eye opener to be on the receiving end of medications and how powerless that feeling is, um, or disempowering. You, you know, that you have to take life, life saving medications, but at the same time, you really don't have control. So I think to your point, it, it's so important for people to feel that they can leave that visit feeling empowered with actual real suggestions um, that they can, they can take action upon and not just general guidelines where they go to this. And I've had patients say this, they go to the supermarket and they're confused. Like, should I get this or should I get that? You know, if they have either list or breakdown of stuff or something that really suits what they're trying to do, that's the personalized component, they can take and make action steps and they feel they're in control. And that, you know, if they're eating healthier, their families will, will follow because they, one of them is maybe preparing for the family or purchasing the food for the family, all of which, you know, is important. Yeah, I think this is a very important point because unfortunately, unfortunately patients are you know, bombarded. So let's say somebody has digestive symptoms. So from their gastroenterologist, they get the recommendations that, you know, organizations or committees have come up with that. That's, and, and that changes every few years because <laughs> I, I've been in this business long enough to have seen, you know, the evolution often from yes. one extreme to the other. So on the other hand, they go on the internet and then they are bombarded with messages from, from influencers. And you know, yeah. do you trust recommendation what you should be eating to improve your digestive symptoms from somebody who has 400,000 followers or should you go with somebody, you know, who doesn't have that right. many so followers so that but, but a, might, might actually be a well-vetted source. You, you, it's, it's tough to, it's, it's tough for people to know. Um, and I think that's an excellent point because, because, in, because there are many influencers who have very large platforms um, but they, their messaging is 
um, very specific, very niche to something that they believe, their philosophy, and I respect that. We're all you know, entitled to our philosophy and our life path. But when, when it involves food and exclusion of certain food groups, I do feel that one has to respect that not everyone eats the same. You know, some people may want to eat chicken. Some people want to include meats in their diet. That's all they've eaten their whole lives. But we can encourage them to have a plant-rich diet, you know, and others. Um, so, so I feel like there has to be a balance. And if someone comes to me and says, I, you know, I don't want to eat these products. It's not for me to say you have to. It's for me to try to find, well, what are the nutrients we could get you from other products, um, other foods that you can eat that can help you. You know, I, I feel that that's an important discussion to have with individuals because sometimes inadvertently or, or maybe deliberately, some of these influences or individuals tap into a fear factor, which then really drives eating behavior. And when we come to nutrition or food or a diet through fear, that's just emotionally, psychologically, never a good place. And so I think there's, you know, it's it's the who should you take the advice from? It's uh, how, uh, what is the messaging? Is it based on fear? Is it based on fact? Is it based on research? Is it based on research and a personal opinion, right? Because I'm sure if I said I can only eat these foods, I can find a hundred studies to back it up. Uh, we we know this, so it's 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 a balance for people. I think this is a very important point. It, it also, I mean, particularly this uh, association of food with fear and anxieties, food-related anxieties, yeah. gets into this whole area of orthorexia that you also mentioned in, yeah. your, in, in your book. Yes. So, you know, people have become obsessed with eating the right diet. And it's it's been mainly driven by some, you know, best-selling books about um, the horrible consequences you get from eating gluten. Uh, containing right. foods or foods, uh, right. and you know I mean again out a certain food yeah yeah coming I mean coming back to um, uh, to Dr. Chen at the at the Harvard Harvard Public Health School who has mm -hmm. written now several articles from again from these epidemiological databases mm -hmm. that this whole much of the gluten story is has been a myth you know it's not substantiated mm -hmm. um, but it's so deeply ingrained, this fear and this anxiety that, uh, you know, companies go to these extremes now. If you buy a bottle of water, it says gluten-free on it, you know? And I've seen that. I think that's hilarious. I mean, I, I just... <laughs> but, but this is... I, I, but, but it's true. It's true. I've seen that. This, this mean, is a good point that people are so afraid. They don't even think about yeah. what water is that they want to see that label. They so. want to see that label, yeah. And it then becomes a marketing ploy. You know, I, th I, th I think you're actually right about that because I think people don't um, under they don't often know what gluten is to to be honest, and they don't understand that there are actual healthy, real whole grains that you can be eating. Um, you know, I'm not a fan of say the the sliced processed bread that we get in supermarkets. That you know, I, I know that that sometimes that's what people have access to. So I wouldn't I wouldn't fault them for ever eating that, but it's more. Well, I know what goes into that. That's very different from an artisanal sourdough mm. bread, right? Which is made with a ferment fermentation process and a sourdough starter. So I, I think the I think that if you eat gluten, just my suggestion is embrace it, but just find 
some better sources of it. Um, I, you mentioned when we talked a little earlier that some, you know, you ask individuals to, there's certain foods you think they might react to, so they might try short elimination. With anxiety disorders, I have done that because there's some research to link um, gluten with, with higher levels of anxiety. And in some individuals, not everyone, a slow elimination of certain types of gluten, but then reintroducing proper whole grains later on has worked. So, you know, sometimes they, it, who, who knows in that instance, is it the highly processed um, extra sugar, extra sodium, extra preservatives that's affecting them and driving the anxiety. But, you know, sometimes it has been the gluten, but, but in general, I want people to eat the actual food and, um, and, and not fear as much because a gluten-free cookie or gluten-free um, cracker or whatever it is, is not necessarily healthy. That's a huge misconception. Often there's a, there's a high level of the wrong type of starch in a gluten, in a gluten-free bread. Um, many new, many ingredients in so-called gluten-free treat or food that is actually less healthy for them. So mm. it's, it's often this, um, you know, the food labeling, the marketing also comes into that, like the gluten-free water and, uh, it, it then drives the fear more. And I've had individuals come to me and say, but I'm eating healthy and I'm only eating gluten-free cookies. How does that make the cookie that still has a lot ton of sugar in it? How does it make it healthier? You know, there's that, that feeling that, you know, if you say gluten-free, it's, it's associated with, um, with a certain level of health. So it's a lot of that that people need to sort through in, in the choices they make. Yeah, I mean, coming back to this, you know, concept of orthorexia, which is where you could, you know, other people have said that, um, you know, the U.S. suffer is suffering from a, a national eating disorder, which which I tend to believe it's uh, it's it's not like this in other Western countries. You know, certainly uh, in 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 the Mediterranean countries where food mm -hmm. is still the enjoyment, and um, mm -hmm. I always come back to this because it's such an amazing experience when you go through this yourself. Um, that when when you sit down and have one of these meals, you know they they may not be perfect in terms of you know the the the, the individual elements, but the experience is so positive and joyous that yeah. I strongly believe whatever goes on in your brain, in your emotional uh, emotion generating centers of your brain, is being transmitted to your gut and even to the gut microbes. And that will influence how you process that food and, and what happens with mm -hmm. it. So as opposed, you, you come to this country, I mean, I always tell this experience I had on the plane from a meeting coming home from Barcelona. And there was a, a young couple, American couple who had these sandwiches. I was sitting next to them, look delicious sandwiches that they bought in Barcelona. And then they took these sandwiches apart and put all the the delicious bread that the sandwich was made of um, on the side and threw it away, and um, and I was asking them, so wh why are you doing this? And said, well, we 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 cannot tolerate gluten. I asked them, do you have celiac disease? No, no, but we we have terrible responses to to, to gluten. So that's a good example. That fear, you know, this poor couple yeah. goes to a place like Barcelona, delicious yeah. food. Instead of enjoying it, you know, they're worried about. Right. Getting symptoms. They so worry about gluten, yeah. And and then I'll tell you that you know, as as I'm 
I'm guessing you've experienced as well, individuals who are struggling in that way um, are pretty, uh, pretty difficult to really help with proper nutritional recommendations because they balk at inclusion of certain foods, a wider variety of just healthful options because they're very narrow about what they believe they should eat um, and they perceive it to be healthy, but it has become so narrow that uh, uh, it, it actually is working against them and they don't realize. You know, NADA, the National Eating Disorders Association, talks about orthorexia. Um, and, you know, I, I feel like it's really much more prevalent in, in our culture than people realize. It's just not labeled that way, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but it's there. And and we see it we see it in we see it in many uh, different demographics. Yes. Yeah, so coming back to you to your excellent book. So you have several chapters that deal with specific psychiatric disorders, and um, if I ask you, you know, your personal opinion of all these disorders from PTSD to depression to anxiety, schizophrenia. Um, kind of two two related question in in which of these disorders have you had personally or from your reading the biggest success with you know incorporating nutritional psychiatry in, into it um, and which ones would you consider so the least responsive to these interventions to dietary interventions right so i would say the least responsive would be the individuals with orthorexia often may just um, they may have associated depression or anxiety and have come to me because they're struggling even with, say, insomnia, but they uh, really struggle with me around making those changes. Um, I would say the individuals that do much better, believe it or not, I've had a, a great deal of success working with individuals with uh, diabetes uh, with comorbid symptoms of either anxiety, one of uh, an individual came to me with symptoms of trauma and diabetes, another depression, you know, just a few examples. But what was fascinating is that the mental health symptoms were varied in each case, but by helping them adjust the diet and teaching them those habits like we spoke about at the beginning, meal planning, instead of dousing in orange juice when you're uh, your uh, uh, Dexcom goes off or whatever it is, you know, rather have healthy snacks, be planning your meals in a better way. I've had good success with individuals over time, lowering the amount of insulin, working collaboratively with the endocrinologist. I don't adjust the insulin, but I work with them. Um, but we've worked on diet. We even in, in several individuals, both in meditation, because they were individuals who just wanted to learn some form of mindfulness and it helped them reduce the anxiety as well. So the so it was all of those components. Um, I would say that those range on the, maybe the, the uh, conditions I feel most proud about because uh, in the work, because I feel like we not only help the reduction of the mental health symptoms, you know, the, the, the control of their diabetes became so much better. So I think that that, uh, the, you know, across the board, when individuals truly do the work, Dr. May, when they, they come in and they they start to cut back on those problematic foods that are part of our 
standard American diet and they start to focus in on these healthy nutrients, um, they their symptoms improve, you know, and I think that I think it does require motivation and it's it's a marathon, not a sprint. So people have to understand this is not taking a Tylenol and the headache's gonna go away. This is gonna be slowly and steadily eating in a way that's gonna adapt our microbiome that could potentially impact positive change. Yeah, this is really interesting that you said this about so that that those patients who have comorbid physical diseases together with their psychiatric symptoms, which is often the case, I mean, in they Alzheimer's often, yeah. and Parkinson's and, uh, you know, like a whole, and, and depression as well. I've sort of become really um, excited about this, this kind of almost like unifying theory that this low-grade immune activation starting in the gut, you know, diet-induced microbial-mediated, um, and then going spilling beyond the gut into the systemic circulation, that that maybe the unifying explanation for most of our, this epidemic of chronic uh, non-infectious uh, diseases that we're dealing with today and yeah. may even play a role in, in susceptibility to long COVID or more, more severe COVID yeah. symptoms. <clears throat> yeah. Do you think that that's the main, I mean, there's other things that the, that the microbes can, can produce. I mean, they can produce hundreds, probably thousands of metabolites, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. neuroactive metabolites from GABA to... Yeah. Um, yeah. But to me, it seems the one thing that it makes the most sense, and what you said kind of confirms that, is this, you know, counteracting this in inflammatory state that is, associ is, is associated with our unhealthy diet. This is, I, I would agree with that. And also because more of the recent research that actually some of it was, was out as my book came out, but but even more current research is really looking at inflammation being such an underpinning and underlying cause for depression, anxiety, cognitive disorders, and more. And I've had conversations with, you know, um, individuals like Dr. Rudy Chanzi, who, you know, discovered one of the first Alzheimer's genes. And, and, and we've spoken about how impactful diet can be to lower the neuroinflammation component, right? That you know we don't we don't necessarily have the medication cure, but we we can definitely eat differently from an early stage. And and I think you know the misperception that Alzheimer's and dementias are, are diseases of the elderly. We all have brain changes; they're just not symptomatic, mm -hmm. and they may never become symptomatic. But how we eat could be one of the factors that helps us um, by those anti-inflammatory molecules by those polyphenols by all of those foods. So yeah, I'm, I'm definitely with you on that. I think that uh, inflammation is so, uh, it, it just has become the, to me, a lot of the underlying um, underlying problems that we, we're facing. And we know that how how we eat in this country drives that, you know, it drives that. Yeah. Yeah, so we've almost come to the end of this conversation. I, I could go on talking to you for a long time because me too, a, lo me too. A, lo a lot of areas that you know I, I really value your your opinion on um just want to show this again I'm, I'm going to ask you one last question at the end but i don't want to forget to show your book again so yeah. anybody wants to read more about the topics of our conversation i strongly recommend that um, so the last question is a personal one if if i may ask i mean you you, you mentioned it yourself uh, so you had a, a medical diagnosis 
pretty serious medical diagnosis and you have overcome this and you've gone through um, a lot of reflections about your own health and uh, uh, lifestyle. So if you want to just spend a couple of minutes talking about it, and, and what is the main lesson in terms of you know the the role of diet in in having overcome this this personal challenge well you know i think the uh, i mentioned one of the lessons earlier on in our conversation was when you become the patient you really appreciate that perspective of how there is doctors don't intend for it to be this way but you feel quite helpless and you feel like you are asked to do things and you don't really have a choice um and uh, and it's the medical system is not intended to be that way but it really gives you the vision of seeing treatment through the eyes of a patient that was one very big lesson and was very humbling for me and that is why i'm always so careful and respectful around any recommendation even around food to someone i want to really see it through their perspective as well and include them in the conversation the other was that um diet was so very powerful along with mindset initially i was so anxious when and and i, I fortunately not an individual who struggled through that condition but when i was given this diagnosis it happened so rapidly um, and things proceeded at such a pace that i found myself very anxious on the morning of my first chemotherapy treatment and I realized, I, I really had to spend a few minutes trying to grapple with it. Um, I realized I wasn't doing what I was telling individuals every day in my clinic to do. I wasn't putting myself in that position and really leaning into the stuff I knew. I was generally eating healthy. Um, I could have been managing my stress a whole lot better. So I really started to pay attention to that again and dove deeper into, I'm eating healthy, but I'm now gonna prepare everything at home. Um, you know, part of it was you, you really can't eat out as much uh, for immunity reasons. And um, so I did that. I, I tapped into it and inadvertently, I sort of tested out these protocols without intending to, and they became the blueprint of the work that I do today. So that was a very powerful experience for me especially when my doctors would ask me every week what are you eating what are you packing in your lunch this week for your chemo you know because you you're not having the side effects and they were very happy about that but they wanted to understand it um so i think that you know those were the pluses of having gone through what i did uh, and i think that it's um it was it was very big very humbling learning experience for me so thank you for asking. Yeah, thanks for sharing this. And and again, I mean, thank you so much for spending this time with me to talk about a topic that I'm sure is of is of wide interest um, in in the lay community and amongst patients. So yeah, thanks again. And hopefully, you know, we'll have another opportunity in the future to meet in person. That would be wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I really like it. Like you said, we could I could we could go on for quite some time if we had <laughs> if we had it available. Okay. Bye bye. Thank you so much. Take care.